If you have your Bibles, let's open them to the book of Ezra. We continue our study through this Old Testament book at chapter 4. By way of review, can I remind us that uh, the book of Ezra describes a time in Israel's history that many historians call, consider their darkest days. Now, I would say that when a nation no longer exists, that's a dark day. And that's where we are in the book of Ezra, about 587 as this book begins. And I want us to grab it this way. You see, if Israel no longer exists in this day, then the promises of God no longer exist. And so I walked us through in the introduction this story of you know, Israel's history, and I'll bring us all the way out here. You remember, they split into northern and southern kingdoms. 722, the northern kingdom's gone. Assyria takes them. 150 years later, the southern kingdom falls, and they're gone, taken into Babylon. And it's a dark day because now what about the promises of God? Wait a minute, God promised, Genesis 3, he would send a man born of a woman who would crush the serpent. What's gonna happen to that? And we got greater clarity when he said to Abraham, I'm gonna birth a nation through you. Okay, it's gonna come through the nation that comes through Abraham. That's the nation of Israel. And then he came on to say to King David, there's gonna be a king in your line that lives forever. And so it's getting clear, oh, oh, this is gonna be a king who lives forever. Well, that only, thing lives, only person who lives forever is God. It's going to come through your line, David. And it's going to, he's going to crush the serpent. In other words, he's going to make right all things. And he's going to make it possible for us to be back into a right relationship with God. But wait a minute, Israel's gone. And so if it's a dark day for Israel, I want us to feel and know it's a dark day for the world. Because there is therefore now no hope. And yet against all odds, the hand of God moves the hearts of kings, for by his bidding, empires, empires rise and fall. The Babylonians who seemed insurmountable when they crushed the, excuse me, the southern kingdom, well, 70 years later, the Medes and Persians come along and crush them. And we open up the book of Ezra and we find right here, it opens with Cyrus, king of Persia, making a proclamation to the Jews, go home, go home and rebuild the temple. Michael took us into chapter two and he reminded us that these people that go home, they have names, they have families, the details matter. Why? Because they were going home, not just to occupy a land, but to worship God. And God had said, you will worship me a certain way. And only those of a certain tribe can lead you in worship. So they had to have papers. I'm of the tribe of Levi. And those who didn't could not serve. And then chapter 3, Bill walked us through that last week. The exiles are home. But gang, they're home and their city has no walls and they're surrounded by the enemies of God. It's an interesting thing in 3 verse 3, it says they were terrified of the people around them. But rather than going and grabbing rocks and going, build the wall, what do they do? They go and grab rocks and build the altar. And there they make sacrifices and they worship their God. And Bill said this, why do terrified people worship God rather than build the walls? Because when we worship, we're reminded of who God is and all that he's promised. And you see, in worship, we come to the realization, hey, 
It's not the walls we make that protect us. It's the God who's present and his strong arm that protects. Listen, that's as true today as it was then. Well, chapter three ends with the foundation of the temple laid. Uh, The work, I can say it this, the work is progressing. So we pick up chapter four and we see this. What happens when the people of God do the work of God? And I'm gonna tell you this, it doesn't go well. Uh, I'll warn you now, this is, this is a story that's not going to end well. This chapter, it's not a feel-good message. This is a weighty message, you guys. It's more of a warning. Uh, we would do well to keep in mind Paul's words when he wrote to the church at Corinth. Remember, Paul wrote to them in chapter 10 and said, hey, all the stuff that happened in the Old Testament happened for a reason. And he goes on to say, look, some of them did this, don't do it. Some of them did this, don't do that. Some of them did this, don't do that. And then he says in verse 10, 1 Corinthians, or verse 11, 1 Corinthians 10, now these things, what things? The things we're reading in the Old Testament. These things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction. So we're going to come to this text, and it's not hard to see what happens. I mean, I'm going to hit that, and we're going to go, that's what happened. But we got to step back and go, well, well, what do we learn from what happened so that we don't do what they did? That's where our text goes today. Before I read chapter 4 and we study it, I've got to do a little bit of textual work. This is rather academic, but it's important for us as we read it. Uh, For reasons we'll talk about in a minute, Ezra arranges his information rather strangely. The easiest way I can help us to get this, and you're going to just have to look at your Bibles and maybe make a few marks if this helps you, is to look at your text, look at the text in your Bible, and I want to encourage you, and I I think this would be a good thing to do. I would put a bracket at verse 6. So here's verse 6. Put a bracket right there. And then you're going to go all the way over to verse 23. And the last word in the New American Standard Bible, which we teach from, the last word in verse 23 is arms. I would put a bracket behind arms. So now you've got verse 6 and verse 23 bracketed. The reason we do that is what happens in verses 6 to 23 is not chronological to what happens in the chapter. It's it's as if Ezra inserts this 60-year history that is actually, this is a little confusing, What he describes in those verses is actually in the future. So he's talking about things that are happening out here, and I'll say this later, in Nehemiah's time. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah, 100-year span, so to speak? It's happening out here. Does that sort of make sense? I'm going to read it that way, and maybe it'll help you even further. If we're going to say, what happened when they laid the foundations? What happened immediately after that? Well, that's verses 1 through 5 and verse 24. So follow along in your Bibles, and here is what happens when God's people begin to do God's work. Verse 1, chapter 4. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of of father's households and said to them, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. 
Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Skip to verse 24. Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Everybody look up here for a moment. That's what happens chronologically. Verses one through five, verse 24. That's 16 years. They're barely, they barely started building. I mean, they're just months into building. And these enemies come against them, discourage them, frustrate them such that verse 25, the work stopped. Well, how long did it stop, Lloyd? 16 years. They put it aside for 16 years. That's what happens chronologically. You with me? Now, verses 6 to 23, it seems Ezra, for, for, his re, for good reasons, inserts what happens not just in those 16, but beyond the 16. What we're going to read now, I want you to hear this, happens 50 years after the temple's already done. Now, we're going to come back to the building of the temple. But what he's going to say now happens out here in the future. The temple's been done for 50 years, and now these things are still happening. Notice what he says. Now, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. That's, one, that's the first, you know, coming against them. They wrote a letter to Ahasuerus. And then secondly, and in the days of Artaxerxes, again, they're coming after him. Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, and the judges, and the lesser governors, and the officials, the secretaries, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Asnapar deported and settled in the city of Samaria and in the rest of the region beyond the river. What is that saying? It's saying this. Everybody went against the people of God. I mean, just lining them up. We all went against them. All the enemies of God come against the people of God. Now, this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They, watch this, they are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, what are they describing there? They're not, that's not they're rebuilding the temple. Remember, the temple's been done for 50 years. This is later when they're rebuilding the wall. This is in the time of Nehemiah. Does this make sense? He's talking out in the future. Now let it be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now because we are in service of the palace, and by the way, if this feels like, you know what, like they're just buttering him up, it's exactly what they're doing. Now because we are in the service of the palace, it's not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. We're going to take care of you, king. We're on your side. We're going to help you. So that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers, and you will discover in the record books and learn that the city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces, and that they have incited revolt within it in the past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. We inform the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished, and as a result, 
you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Now, I want to stop there and just make this comment. Do you notice, and there's other subtleties going on here. It's really fascinating. But do you notice what they, if I can say this, tempt the king with or, or, or how they tell the king what's going to happen so that they'll do what he wants? Notice they hit him where? They hit him in his pocket. They hit him with his money. They hit him with his prestige. They hit him with his power. It, it, do you see that? So, so, and is it any different today when the enemy comes against you and says, you, you know, you're wanting to do the right thing, but he said, well, if you do that, then you're going to lose money. Isn't that true? It comes against you. you want, you're trying to take a stand for Christ. It's like, well, if you do that, you're going to lose your possessions. Well, if you do that, you're going to lose your reputation. It's always the work of the evil one along these lines. Verse 17, then the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river. Peace and now. The document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me, and a search has been made, and it has been discovered that that city has risen up against the kings in the past that rebel in, in past days, that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it, that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, and that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work, that this city may not be rebuilt. Until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Then as soon as the copy of, the king, of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem, to the Jews, and stopped them by force of arms. That's 60 years that's, that's out here that's happening in the future. Now, if we step back, the message of Ezra 4, y'all, there's just no rocket science in this message today. It's just straight up. There's not one of those necessarily any ahas. I mean, we read it and we go, this is what happened. Here's the message of Ezra 4. The enemies of God come against the people of God and bring the work of God to a halt. There, there you go. What happened in this chapter? The enemies of God come against the people of God and bring the work of God to a halt. Well, Lloyd, what about that big parenthesis? It's huge in the whole middle section. Well, why did he insert that? May I suggest he inserted that to tell us that the enemies of God come against the people of God all the time, in every way, and never quit. <laughs> so he inserts that. So look, this isn't, a one, this isn't a one-time occurrence. This is the nature of God's, of God's people making progress. They will, they'll always be coming against you. There's the message of Ezra. I've got, I, I probably listed out 12 lessons that I thought, man, this seems like it's saying this. I grabbed just a few. You know, you can go through here and pull your own, but let me offer these to you. And I'm only going to say this. Would you ponder and consider these things? Because if Paul said these were written for our instruction, it seems we need to pay attention to a few of the lessons that the text gives us. The first one would be this. No work of God proceeds without opposition and resistance. No work of God proceeds without opposition and 
and resistance. I would suggest that that is true corporately for a community of faith, a church. I want to suggest it's absolutely true individually. I could say it this way. You will not grow spiritually without opposition and resistance. I wish it weren't so. But that's a fact. Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who, are, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. True then, true today, will be true until Jesus returns. And here's the reason why. Remember I said this. The Jews, they went back home, but they were planted home, but it was in the midst of their enemies. See, it was their home, not permanent, and they're in the midst of their enemies now. And so if the Jews who believe God are going to move forward with God, where are they, you know, they're going to move forward against those people who are against God. That's just a fact. Can I remind you that you and I are on a planet that's not home, and that you and I literally have been put behind enemy lines. That's where we live. This world is under the, under the rule of the evil one for a time, and we are on it. And therefore, we live, you know, I'm trying to not be so harsh on this and draw these super hard lines, but we live in the midst of our enemies, so to speak. When I say that, you know what I mean. People who don't believe the, who don't hold to God, don't, don't believe the Bible's the word of God. We live in the midst of that. And therefore, if, if the work of God's going to progress in our life, uh, what's going to happen? We're going to hit opposition and resistance. Can I say it this way? We're going to make enemies. We're going to make enemies. And I have sat with this text for two weeks, and I just got to tell you, for me personally, it's, it's got me just asking some questions about my life. I'll ask it out loud and let it sit on you. I ask this, does anything about, does anything about my life Does anything I say, is there anything I stand for on this planet that people want to stop me? They want to put an end to me. No. (laughs) That's the truth. Not really. Why not? Why don't I have more enemies if I'm behind enemy lines? You might say, Lloyd, the Christian life's not about making enemies. It's, it's about showing people the love of Christ. I mean, it's about making friends. And you know I, I, you know I know that. I'm not saying you go out and just make enemies, be arrogant and mean and prudish. And... It just seems to me, would you just consider this, that in principle... That the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation shows us when the people of God are most the people of God, people want to stop them. I'm just telling you all the way through. They want to annihilate. What do they want to do here? Stop. They want to annihilate them, quite frankly. Hmm. According to Scripture, in one lesson it seems... Ezra is telling us is that opposition, resistance, hardship are normal to the one who follows God. And I'm just asking, 
How would I say this? Say it this way. Maybe our greatest threat is not opposition. Maybe it's a lack of opposition. You ever thought of that? Again, I don't like that. But I think it could be true. Secondly, a godly decision does not remove opposition. It will often provoke more. You see what happens in the text? I mean, they came, let us help. They said, no way, because you're, you, know, you can't help. You're, you don't really worship God. I'll talk about that in a moment. And when they got rejected, what happened? Did they go home? Did they go home and say, okay, well, they're going to do that? No, what did they do? They took the gloves off. I mean, a massive PR marketing campaign goes on. Literally, what's going on here is they're bribing city officials, like the zoning board. They're bribing them to say, don't let them build that wall. That's what happens. So when they took a godly stand, the opposition didn't go away. The opposition increased. I don't like that, but mm, that seems to be what happens. I'm reminded of this, gang. When, we talk, when I talk about a biblical stand, when I talk about living a biblical lifestyle, choosing that, we don't choose that in order to get rid of the opposition. We don't choose that even in order for God to give us something. I'm going to do this so it goes well with me. I'm going to follow God's. No, we don't do that. We take that stand not because of what it produces. We take that stand because of what it declares, what it, what it says. When I stand on the truth of God's word, what it says to a world that doesn't stand on the truth of God's word, it says, I believe that God is good, true, and right, period, regardless of what happens, you see. It's not what, it, it's not what we get out of it. It's simply what we declare when we live biblically that matters. I'm reminded of Daniel and his buddies thrown in the fiery furnace. Do you remember that great line in Daniel 3? He said, we're not bowing down to you. I mean, you can throw us in the fire. Our God's able to deliver us. But if he doesn't, no problem. He's still our God and he's the God, you see. So it wasn't like they said, you know, we're going to get out of this. We may not get out of this. Doesn't matter. I'm standing on what's true. And I'm declaring, you see, I'm saying that God is true and that God is God. A godly decision does not remove opposition, y'all. It only provokes more. And then here's a little spooky one. Third, the enemy most detrimental to your faith may look a lot like a friend. Isn't that what our story tells us? That those who came to Zerubbabel and Jeshua said, hey, we worship God just like you. Come on. I mean, we've been making sacrifices for hundreds of years. Don't miss that it's introduced this way when the enemies of Judah came. We get a little confused because they seemed like such nice guys. Well, who are these people? When the Assyrians, remember Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, Assyrians wipe out the Northern Kingdom. When the Assyrians wiped out the Northern Kingdom, they took some of them captive. But one of the policies of the Assyrians was this. When they take over a region, they go to other parts of their kingdom and grab people. And they say, look, you're coming with us because we just conquered this region. We're going to put you in it. We want you to populate it. Now, that region, they populated Israel, Palestine. Now, go all the way to the New Testament. Who are these people he's talking about? They're the Samaritans because they... They, they just married Jews. They intermingled this mixed race. I want you to know they really did worship God. Here's the problem. This is 1 Kings or 2 Kings 17. Don't turn there. I'm going to give you two verses. 2 Kings 17.33 says of these very people, they feared the Lord and served their own gods. That's who these people are. 
2 Kings 17, verse 41. So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols. In other words, they worshiped God and blank. In my notes, I've got and in huge letters because that's the problem. I've used this equation before regarding salvation, faith, Jesus. Let's just say it like this. God plus anything equals nothing. God plus nothing equals everything. <laughs> See, God, what did God say to his people? You shall worship me. <laughs> you shall have no other gods before me. And so here's these people. I mean, they are. They're worshiping God and here's the problem. People who worship God and look a lot like me. They look like a, they look, they're us. Oh my goodness, if, if I can just make it, you know, I'll keep it personal to me. The truth of the matter is we all get into this. I mean, in my own life, I've got idols in my life because you know, you know, I say I'm trusting God, but at the same time, you know, I'm kind of hedging my bets over here with something else I'm leaning on, I'm trusting, I need this to... So we all do that. The, 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 what I want us to understand is when even we, when even we worship God and in anything, we go to anything else, when we do that, can I say this, that we become, in a, you know, take this the right way, we're the enemy. We, we become harmful to other people's faith and to the work of the kingdom. That's sobering. Let me end with a brighter note. Uh, the fourth point, principle lesson you may take. There is hidden providence in the opposition. There is hidden providence in the opposition. And I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss it in the story, and I don't want you to miss it in your own life. What do I mean by this? Look again at your text. Notice verse 21. Uh, Artaxerxes says, so now issue a decree to make these men stop work that this city may not be rebuilt. And then he adds this phrase, until a decree is issued by me. Now, Medo-Persians, when they make decrees, they're irreversible. <laughs> you know, when they say it, they, they, can't go back, they can't go back on their own decree. You remember the book of Esther? Do you remember uh, that, that uh, Haman tricks the king basically into writing a decree? On this day, everyone go kill every Jew they can find. And, and Esther comes to the king and says, you've got to understand, I'm Jew. You're going to kill all my people. And what does the king you know, what, what, does the king say? Hey, hey, take that law off the books. Hey, I'm reversing what I said. He doesn't do that, does he? Why? Because he can't. That's not how they do it. A decree is a decree. So what did he have to do? He didn't even write a decree saying nullify that decree. What did he do? Do you remember the story? He did write another decree, but what was that? He wrote to the Jews and said, you can fight. So when they do come, because I did write that decree, can't take that back. But when they do come, you kill them. The, the point I'm making here is when he said in this decree that this city may not be rebuilt, could have put a period right there. Just could have put a period right there. And I'm not saying God couldn't still have done what he was going to do, but you understand if he'd have done that, then that's irreversible decree. That city will not be rebuilt. But he goes on and says, huh, what if one in the world? He goes on and says, until I issue a decree. Now open your, don't open there, but if you go to your Bibles to Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter two, that king issues another decree 
and says to Nehemiah, go and rebuild the city. Why in the world would he add that phrase to the decree? I mean, what would move him to do that? The hand of God who moves the hearts of kings to keep his promises. Well, God's at work in the opposition. There's a reason even for the opposition. God's using it to shape his people. And yes, using it in your life and mine, even to shape us more and more into the image of Christ. And I'm gonna pray in a moment for you that whatever you're facing, because I know we all are. We've all got stuff in our life. I had someone walk up to me earlier and say, look, you don't have enough enemies. I do, you can have some of mine, you know. Here, you can take some of mine. But we all have these challenges. I'm gonna pray that God would open your eyes to see even in that darkness, even in that which you don't like, don't want, I wish that would go away, that there is in it hidden providence. So God's gonna use it in a way we can't even see yet, but he will use down the road. So what? We always ask, so what? We always say, Lord, that's what happened. There's some lessons. So What? So what would you have me believe, God? What are you calling me to trust you for? Is there a step of faith I need to take? Would you pause just for 30 seconds before we leave and ask the Holy Spirit to show you your own application to these lessons? Would you do that, please? Father, thank you that you recorded specific events in history for our edification, for our growth, for our instruction. And the things that happened to them happened for a reason, and they actually serve us. And so as we watch your people in Jerusalem face incessant opposition, may we take heart mindful that this is the path of spiritual growth, that there is no maturity without opposition and resistance. May we know that a decision we make for godliness, for truth, for what's right, that it will indeed provoke even more opposition. May we be able to recognize when a friend, is, a friend is actually an enemy. And may we recognize it in our own lives when we are choosing our idols and adding them to trust in you that we are doing great damage to those we love and walk with and to our own souls. And Father, would you grant each of us by your spirit 
the eyes to see that there is hidden providence even in the opposition. And by these truths and your spirit, let us not lose heart, as Paul writes, in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Amen.